0: Greetings, friends, and welcome back to Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. My name is Bob Kaler, and my co-host Stephanie Greenwald is joining me once again from Oklahoma as we do our trans-American connection here, our Global studio here for the the podcast. <laughs> Stephanie, like how things? Bob. Yeah, this has been uh, been great for us to be able to connect across the wires and yes. and uh, I, I I'm always amazed because I I usually use this podcast setup and we have our big broadcast mics here and so people are always like, wow, wow. it looks so professional. And I said, we try, <laughs> we try very it's hard right. to be to be professional in the midst of this. So That's
1: exactly right. It is pretty cool that we can do this across state lines and uh, be together when we're not actually together. But I am so excited to introduce our guest who is with us uh, across state lines in studio today. With us is Dr. Ryan Danker. He was formerly an associate professor of church history and Methodist studies at Wesley Theological Seminary and is currently the director of the John Wesley Institute in Washington, D.C. So, Ryan, how are you today?
2: I'm doing well. I'm doing well, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. And of course, I'm not coming from Washington today. I'm coming from the wonderful Commonwealth of Virginia. So let's even, yes. <laughs> even add that to our geographical map.
1: <laughs> That's right. Oh, I love that too. So we're so excited to have you uh, with us today. And you were a part of organizing the Next Methodism Summit in D.C. a few weeks ago. So tell us a little bit about the summit before we dive into talking about the book that you and Kenneth Collins have edited together. But tell us a little bit about that summit.
2: Oh, yeah. The summit was, was an amazing event. Um and, and we gathered in Alexandria, Virginia in Old Town. Um, and it was a gathering of 65 Wesleyan scholars, faithful Wesleyan scholars, um, and some church leaders who, who are, uh, especially bishops who have um, been, you know, essentially in, in the renewal of Methodism. Anyway, we gathered and the, the point of the summit wasn't to gather academics to talk to each other and present papers. Like we usually do, um, the the point of it was to write a document for the church, and um, and and that document I've, I've been editing it this morning. Uh, Kevin Watson and I are the final editors of the document, but it's it is a a beautiful commitment to the faith once delivered and to the emphases of the Wesleyan movement. And uh, we think it'll be a gift to the church.
0: Yeah, do you hope? It, do you hope that this will? inform both the United Methodist Church and the new emerging Global Methodist Church?
2: Absolutely. And in fact, not, not even just limited to mainline Methodism. Um, I've actually been in contact with leaders in the Church of the Nazarene and in the Church of God, um, Cleveland, Tennessee, you have to get that right, um, and other holiness groups. And in fact, not everyone at the summit was a United Methodist. Um, we, we had other um, holiness groups. Wesleyan denominations represented, um, we hope this will be a gift to the movement writ large, uh, to, the, to Wesleyan Christianity in, in all of its forms. And, and really the document that, we're, that we put together is, it, it's a firm commitment to Nicene Christianity. Is what it is. Um, if you can say the creed without crossing your fingers, you'll like this document. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's committing ourselves to that faith, once delivered as St. Jude says in, in his letter. Um, and then highlighting how Wesleyan Christians have embraced this and how the Wesleyan tradition participates in that great tradition that we're a part of. Um, and it's, but I, like I said, it is written for the church. This is not a scholarly document. Um, as I'm editing this, and as I was talking to people at the summit, we encourage them to write for the people in the pews. Mm-hmm. Um, And so, that's not easy for academics to do, by the
0: way. Well, and and you all have also, many of these same scholars have contributed to a book which Stephanie mentioned, you edited along with Ken Collins, a, a collection of essays from traditional Wesleyan scholars called The Next Methodism. And I got an advanced copy, read the whole thing over the weekend, and was just blown away by the... The, the arguments and the, the cogent way that so many of these scholars have articulated so many aspects of our faith, and I was telling Stephanie before we got on that we now have grist for a lot of future podcasts with some of these folks who have written uh, some great chapters of this book. Now, this is currently available from Seedbed, just came out a week ago. as we're, as we're speaking. So tell us about this project uh, with the next Methodism book. How did it come together? Again, who is this book for?
2: Yeah. Well, again, it's for the church. Um, This is something that we're seeing right now. Scholars within the faithful scholars within the Wesleyan tradition are seeing the need for, um, for, for faithful scholarship to be made accessible. It, it, this is not just for seminary classrooms, it's not just for college classrooms, it's not just for conferences. And in fact, the Wesleyan message itself was never intended to be limited to ivory towers. Mm-hmm. Um, John Wesley may have been a professor at Oxford, you know, and he taught logic and Greek. I, I can the fact that he taught those topics just drives me crazy. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, at the heart of Wesleyanism is this call for accessibility. And that's that's at the heart of the book too, um, the book. And you know, I've got my my own copy here. I mean, it, I I was just saying earlier, Bob, I'm impressed. This is not a thin book. This is 377 pages, so um, you really dove into it over a weekend. But what we did is we gathered 35 top-notch Wesleyan scholars, and we told them, we told well, we we gave them a subject, right? So for instance, we were just talking about Warren Smith from Duke. We said, Warren, we want you to write about marriage. And so we did. And um, and like all the other participants, we said, what is your hope for the next Methodism related to this topic? And, and I think that's key. Not, not um, how did we mess up? <laughs> you know, how is how is how have Methodists not done this right in the past? No, what is your hope? So it's a positive, it's an overall positive book. Um, and, and it includes a who's who, um, I mean, if you know, if you read, in fact, I hope you have every single person in this book on your, on your show, um, <laughs> because they're just top notch people.
1: They really, really are. In fact, I was going through the list and, and seeing how many we actually have already had on the show and, and then again, how many we still need to have. But there's some great stuff in this book from these scholars. So as one of the editors, let our listeners know, what are some of the highlights in this book for you? Right. See,
2: that's the question I've been stumbling over, um, <laughs> the highlights. I mean, there isn't a weak chapter in this book.
0: Um, I agree completely yeah totally
2: <laughs> we we really went after um the top scholars to do these and we and we spent a lot of time editing and talking with them about accessibility and um and and actually it's, it's great fun to, so ken and i are good we're good buddies um and it's always great to work on a project with a friend and of course we're both wesley scholars so we even we can butt heads about topics within our own field, but it's always with a twinkle in our eye, you know. But it was great in terms of our chapters. Um, we sent them to each other before um, before we declared them, you know, in any final form. And both of us were able to kind of assist each other to to make them better. But now, okay, what are the highlights in the book? I need to get to your question. Um, well, I mean, so the book is dedicated to Billy Abraham. And, um, and that was Ken's idea, and it was a great, great idea and fitting for Billy. I love Billy's chapter, and I, I love the fact that the book starts with Billy. Um,
0: and the title of the chapter is Doctrine or Death. I thought that was such a great way to start the book. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, and it's just like him, and you can read the chapter if you knew him well, enough. you could read it with an Irish accent.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I mean, I like Ken's, t- uh, you know, I like Ken's chapter, the – the key of the Wesleyan understanding of sanctification is holy love. It's not just love without definition. It's God's love. You know, that's really important to the next Methodism. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm fond of the one about tradition, but since I wrote that, I shouldn't comment on that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Bill Arnold wrote a fantastic um, article on embracing a, a, you know, a worldview that's shaped by the scripture Mm -hmm. and, you know, gosh, I'd love to sit at, at the feet of Bill Arnold any day, um, let alone when he's talking about Scripture. Um, Matt O'Reilly, um, "A New Testament Vision for the Future of Global Methodism," is a solid, solid chapter. I mean, I could go on and on. There's, there's, there's too many in here to um, to overlook. One, one I would highlight is is Tim Tennant's "Rediscovering the Theology of the Body," mm-hmm. and I think that's a really important. Um, topic that thankfully he's written a book on that. Um, Protestants need to catch up with Catholics and talking about a the theology of the body because we're not, um, we're not Gnostics, right? We're, we're Christians. <laughs> so the body matters. And I think that he talks about that in a really beautiful way. Uh, Kevin Watson, I'm, I'm just glancing at things now. Kevin's passion for the class and band meetings comes through. And um, that is a beautiful passion he has and it matches the passion of the early Methodists. Um, yeah. Jonathan Powers we're talking about worship. Again, I would sit and listen to Jonathan talk about worship whenever and wherever. That's what the book is like. It's over and over and over again. You're, you're, you're able to sit with somebody who, whose passion and, and faithful commitment comes through just beautifully. And, and it's shaped again by this hope. What is your hope for the next Methodism? And so there's that hopefulness tied in. Um, Anyway, I hope I'm answering your question.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I think one of the things that I sort of saw and I thought it was great that you started with Billy Abraham's chapter, because it's clear that his influence kind of has influenced this generation of scholars in so many ways, and yeah. um, and his influence, we're still grieving his loss. We've not done a special podcast about his legacy. Um, and some people have asked for that and and I, I think we ought to do that at some point when we have a chance to kind of kind of pull that together. but in in many ways, I think this is kind of a, a tribute to him uh, and his and his lasting influence on this on this project and, and an ongoing influence with it as well. Can you talk a little bit about more about Billy's uh, influence on, on you or others in this, in this stream?
2: Yeah. I mean, oh, so you got, you got me smiling. Cause when I think of Billy, I smile. Cause Billy was not my professor. He was not my advisor. Um, I went to Boston university and studied with David Hempton. So I had a different pugnacious Irishman to work with, um, <laughs> but um <laughs> But um, Billy was my friend. And so I knew Billy as a friend who was a great encourager. Um, you know, we met when I was still a, a grad student and um, we spent more time in Oxford pubs than I should admit. Um, <laughs> but um, he was always, he would light up when you walked into the room. It was, there was this authentic friendship and concern about uh, your vocation, your thoughts. Now, here's here's an example. So, Billy and I disagreed vehemently over the number of standard sermons. You know, oh, we would <laughs> launch at each other. <laughs> and um, you know, I was are you saying,
0: a are you a fifty two or forty four guy?
2: I'm a fifty three. Um. Okay, all right then. Yeah, <laughs> <No>, fifty two <laughs> is even better. Um, we don't need to include the sermon on, for Whitfield's uh, funeral, but. Um, the now I'm a 52 guy. I'm definitely a 52 guy. And and actually, you know, the Billy and I launched at each other once in Cincinnati, Ohio. I still remember it because, again, there was that twinkle in the eye. Yeah, you, you know, that's the key. You got to see the eyes. Right. And um, and we launched into each other. And it, there was, it was a it was a who's who in, in that room. Um, and everybody got quiet because there was just this volley back and forth between me and Billy. And of course, we ended it by, you know, laughing, giving each other hugs and stuff. Um, Billy was just this great, articulate, massively intelligent and therefore intimidating, faithful Jesus follower. That was Billy Abraham. Um, And then you tie in that Irish charm. There you go. (laughs) It's really amazing. Now, if you're looking in the book, if you want to see Billy's influence, read Justice Hunter's article, uh, his chapter um, Billy shows up in justice's chapter all the time. Yeah. But I, you know, his advisor. So there you go.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that, that happened when, when Billy died was that some people asked, how are we going to carry forth this legacy of, of scholarship? And I, I think, I think you all have done a phenomenal job picking up that mantle in, in very short order and, uh, are moving that forward. Uh, in a tremendous way so so thank you for that
2: well thank you i mean at the at the summit david watson gave the the opening keynote excuse me and he said that he knew that he was standing in the place where billy would be standing Mm -hmm. and it was this poignant moment with the summit um because the summit was a gathering of friends uh it was a family gathering, and so yeah there's we do grieve his loss as much as I remember happy times in the pubs of Oxford. Um, yeah, it's, uh, he left us a little too early.
1: hmm hmm Truly, truly was an amazing man. He really, really was. So Ryan, switching gears a little bit, uh, yeah. recently in a show, we interviewed uh, folks that are heading up the WCA in Eastern Europe. And one of the things that they mentioned was how important it is as we are looking at the next Methodism to go back to our Wesleyan heritage. So I'm curious for you to help us understand uh, your take on this. What do you think are some of the critical things that the next Methodism will have to do in order Order to be true to our Wesleyan heritage as well as be equipped for ministry in a post Christian culture.
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree with our friends in Eastern Europe, um, some of whom are in the book, by the way. I should mention that. <laughs> um, well, I remember, yeah, I've, I've, I think I've only highlighted some American men so far. There are more than American men in this book. <laughs> in fact, when I, I remember reading Madeline Henner's. Um, chapter in the book first time and i was i felt the holy spirit just by reading that chapter but
0: Mm -hmm.
2: but back to your question stephanie um original methodism the wesleyan movement was a was a holiness movement within the church of england Mm -hmm. and um although i we cannot place ourselves back in the church of england um and they have their their own issues we don't want to deal with we need to recapture a vision where we are, one, uh, a movement in and of itself. I think that's important. Methodism and movement are actually vital to each other, but also a movement whose trajectory and purpose is the proclamation of scriptural holiness. And that's what I would say. Now, why movement? Well, movement in that, you know, Methodism, when when it was growing exponentially, Part of the reason it was growing was because it was flexible. Mm-hmm. It was not um, tied into a bureaucracy that was immovable. And you know, there. So you read Wesley enough, you realize the the system that he came up with was a flexible system. Ironically, right? Perhaps. Um, although what, let's not think that John Wesley was a flexible person. That's not the case. But anyway, <laughs> the movement. <new thing. laughs> No, neither was his brother. Um, <laughs> but the movement had a flexibility to it so that, you know, Wesley would talk about catching up with the showers of grace, right? A beautiful image. You know, it's raining grace over in Yorkshire. I better get over there. Or if I can't go, I better send the preachers. Or if the preachers can't go, somebody needs to get over there, right? So there was a flexibility to it. And of course, you see that in the American context too. Um, Francis Asbury, obviously, again, personally not flexible. Um, <laughs> but in terms of his ministry, you know, he didn't even own a house. He never married. He was just committed to the movement. And I think that defined him. Um, now, I better say this because my friends will be shocked and they'll think that, it, that this wasn't me on this recording. Um, I think the movement that was, that was started, it needs English Christianity to make sense. And what I mean by that is is that the Wesley's and all these other people in the early Methodist movement were shaped and formed by Anglicanism, by the prayer book, by the sacraments, um, by the, you know, what they had received of the great tradition through the Church of England. And I would love to see the next Methodism not mimic or or simply, you know, try to uh, copy that, but I would love to see them tap into the great tradition through the Wesleys. Um, the world did not start in 1703 in, a, you know, in Epworth when John Wesley was born. Um, and I think Wesley would kick us all if, for, for thinking or even acting in any way that made it look like the world started when he was born. Um, so that's something else. But then the holiness trajectory. Um, if we lose the doctrine of holiness, there's no reason for Methodists to exist. I mean, it's just, there's just no point. Um, The world doesn't need another Protestant group. (laughs) You know, there's 40,000 of them. Who wants another one? Um, So if, if the next Methodism in whatever form it takes is able to recapture a vision for holiness, then I think that, that all the pain and suffering that everybody's been through in the last 40 years, there might, it might be worth it.
0: Wow. Yeah, I, I've said that. I think our our mission statement ought to be the the Wesleyan mission statement, which is spread scriptural holiness across the land. I mean that comes up over and over again in the book, um, yeah. as well as as well as Wesley's quote from Thoughts upon Methodism about you know the the movement ceasing to exist if it does not hold fast to this doctrine, spirit, and discipline uh, from which it sprang. And and we've talked. You've just mentioned the um, the Anglican tradition being important to that. Uh, you and I have corresponded a lot over Twitter about sacraments in the, in the Methodist tradition. And uh, we've even talked about the role that the book of common prayer played in Wesley's life. And so in your essay in the book, I I love this line. You said that we would do well to dive into the prayer book tradition and we don't really have, I mean, we have our book of worship. We have, uh, Wesley's Sunday service of the Methodist, which most people have never seen. It's not even easy to get a copy of that these right. days, but when you think about the prayer book tradition and during COVID, I, I got into reading the book of common prayer, using the book of common prayer on a regular basis and found it to be a, an amazing resource from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. What, what might that look like for the future of, of Methodism? And, and then what role do you think the sacraments and liturgy will play in the future? Cause I know this is a conversation that is ongoing. We've had ongoing conversations about things like online communion and, and all kinds of other things. Mm-hmm. How important is that going to be to where we go next?
2: Well, the sacraments were vital to Wesley's vision of holiness. So they have to be vital to modern day Methodists. Um, Okay, so you asked me at least three questions.
0: Right now, <laughs> <probably>. um, <laughs> let me go, okay, so let me break them down for you. So I, I tend I to that. do that because I'm thinking out loud. So, uh, Well, let's start with the prayer book. Let's Is start with there? the prayer book. Yeah, that's where I started. Right.
2: Okay. Um, and a lot of Methodists um, discover the prayer book. Um, and, well, you know, I went to Duke Divinity School and, and a lot of us discovered the prayer book there. And a number of good Methodists became good Anglicans in the process. Um,
0: I have friends. I have friends from Duke who uh, are 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 liturgy uh, uh, fanatics. You know, and uh, yeah. Th- th- yeah. Th- I heard the joke that said, "You know, uh, what's the difference between a terrorist and a liturgist? Y- you can negotiate with a terrorist, right?" Yep. So that's <laughs> that's a good joke from. From my Duke <laughs> friends, yes.
2: It's, it, and it's true. It's not just a joke. Um, <laughs> the Let me put it this way. So when I, when I was in grad school in Boston, um, I found a church home in the Episcopal Church. And um, I actually called my bishop, who I won't tell you who that was, uh, who told me that while I was north of the Mason Dixon, I could go to an Episcopal Church until I came back south. Um, <laughs> well, because I, you know, uh, Methodism is very regional, let's admit that. And so moving from the South to New England, I was a little surprised by the form of Methodism I found up there. Anyway, so I found a home in, in, in an Episcopal church, an Orthodox Episcopal church from Beacon Hill. And it was amazing as, as I participated in the worship and life of that community while I was there, I really I, that was that was a turning point for me in understanding John Wesley. Because the rhythms of the prayer book, the words of the prayer book, the content, the the streams of thought, the the strong um Christ-centered nat- nat- nature of the prayer book, um the the hopeful spirit-infused life that the prayer book points to, the definition of grace that the prayer book provides, it's John Wesley. <laughs> it's all Wesley. Um the, the prayer book, even if you're using the 1979 version, is bathed in the doctrine of holiness. And so as I as I delved into that world, um, I think that's when I really started to understand John Wesley better. So, for instance, if you want to understand John Wesley's definition of grace, which Methodists debate all the time, which is fascinating because they use the word ad nausea, and then they don't know what it means. <laughs> um, Wesley had a great definition. It's the power of the Holy Spirit, right? That's his def- that's his short definition. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's not unmerited favor. It's not. It's you know, which is not dynamic enough. That's a Reformed view, right? Um, and it's not the Holy Spirit himself. That's an Eastern Orthodox view. So Wesley provides an Anglican view, an English view. Um, it's the power of the Holy spirit. And where did he get that? Well, he got it from the collect for grace from morning and evening prayer. And if you look that up uh, and I would recommend the 1662 prayer book for those listening and wondering which one, you know, um, that's the book that Wesley used the 1662 look up the collect for grace. It's, uh, it never once uses the term grace. It uses synonyms. And over and over again, it talks about God's, um, uh, God's, uh, um, governance, his empowerment, his his um, um, his presence, and you can see that come through in that collect and other parts of the liturgy. Anyway, so I think knowing these things, and you know, God forbid, you know, we take up the daily office as a practice, <laughs> which wouldn't hurt anybody. Um, <laughs> you know, it it you'd become a better Wesleyan by doing it. So I that that's what I think about the prayer book. But anyway you asked about sacraments. Yes. The Wesley's were really clear that the Eucharist is the grand channel, um, of grace for the Christian life. Um, and it's interesting as Methodism expanded into the American context, uh, in particular, the liturgy and the sacraments as it were kind of fell off the end of the horse. Um, Almost, you know, almost literally. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And and you can, you know, in a certain sense, you can see why, because most of the time we were sending lay people out to preach and lay people don't celebrate the Eucharist. Um, And so it it took on the form of more of a a preaching order than it did anything else as Methodism expanded. But for the Wesleys, um, you know, who were presbyters or priests of the Church of England, the... The Eucharist was a means by which we run and encounter Christ. Christ runs to us. We run to Christ. We encounter Christ, the living, risen Christ, in something as ordinary as bread and wine. And it's this beautiful um, description. In fact, uh, if anybody wants to dive into this, there are, there are sermons on it, but there's also the hymns on the Lord's Supper. Um, and there's this there's one of those hymns, um, I'm not going to try to quote it because I'll butcher it, but, it describes angels hovering around our altars to try to figure out how Christ is present in something so common as okay. bread and wine. And it's just this beautiful thing. And, and, and at the end of that, actually, what, what it's saying is they're trying to figure out how something so simple, and here's the, here is a quote, communicates all the life of God. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, so in terms of, of the Eucharist, now baptism is something I think modern Methodists have kind of pushed aside, unfortunately, I would hope in the next Methodism we take baptism more seriously. Um, traditionally, baptism was entrance into the church, into the life of the body. And then the Eucharist was the food of the journey within the body. And I think that's something we've lost. Now, that would that's, that's going to be a debate because most, you know, I think most American Methodists would push back, uh, even traditionalists, and say that they don't want to make baptism a requirement. I would. I'm a, I'm a traditionalist, traditionalist. (laughs) But um, the other reason why is because what, as Wesley pointed out and Wesley was just echoing the great, the great tradition. He didn't come up with any of this stuff. Um, Baptism communicates regenerating grace. It's not, it's not us declaring our belief. It's actually a sacrament whereby God communicates regenerating grace either to that infant or to that new believer who is an adult. Um, that, that's something else I've heard. I don't know. There's grumbling that some people don't like infant baptism. It's a part of the tradition. It's um, if we're going to be it, if we're going to be Wesleyans, we will hold on to that. I,
0: I was just turning back to the book and the, the great chapter by Jessica Legrone and Tisha Mallory. Um, yeah. grace, healing, and unity in the breaking of bread. And there are a couple quotes from there that I think echo what you've said. It's a great chapter. The lifeblood yeah. of Methodism will return only with the centrality of the word and table, and worshiping at the table of pragmatism has poisoned the well of the Methodist movement in recent generations. That oh, that was absolutely. a mic drop line for me. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. That, that's when you underline, highlight, circle, put stars around. Um <laughs> And, and I love the fact that the, the Dean of Chapel of Asbury and the Dean of Chapel at United wrote that together.
0: Yeah, um, bo- both phenomenal preachers and uh, and and liturgists as well. So Absolutely. Yes.
2: We both yes. helped to lead worship at the next Methodism Summit. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So as we look ahead, what is next for the next Methodism project? And when might, might we expect to see some of the results of your deliberations? We're excited about that.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, so you're the third person to ask me that today, Stephanie. Um, (laughs) You're editing it
0: this morning. When's it supposed to be done? Let's get on it. (laughs) That's
1: right.
2: (laughs) I was, well, I'll give you a clue. I was editing section five. (laughs) There are six sections. um, And I did send my edits of section five off to Jonathan Powers and Kevin Watson. And now they get to look at it. So it's a process. Um, and I did just before I, we, our call here. I was talking to Ken Collins. He's uh, one of the group leaders for Section Four, which is about salvation. And uh, I'm going to see his his group's work on Monday. It's it's still coming in. The the various groups at the summit. Uh, I allowed them to to produce their own way of Uh, figuring out how to produce their section, right. That wasn't the best grammar. But anyway, I I allowed them to figure out their own process. How's that? Um, And so that, you know, the various groups, some of them had stuff to me on Saturday night of the summit. So the group I was in, group three, um, led by um, Wendy Muller seib and um, Bishop Scott Jones, we had everything ready and polished by Saturday night. Now um, that took great efforts, but to answer your question actually. So we were launching a website and um, the website is being developed. We, I hope this document goes up. Oh, this is, this is being recorded. Um, <laughs> let's aim for late March. I think that's somewhat realistic. Um, the reality is we want this document to be of use to the church. We want it to be substantive. We want it to be clear and, and, and sound, right? It had, you know, we have to, so a lot of people need to look at this before we can put it out there. And it's taken quite a bit of editorial work because, you know, essentially what, we, what we're doing is we took the, the, the thoughts of 65 Wesleyan scholars and we tried to bring them together. And so the initial documents that I that I looked at were really choppy, to be honest. Um, they're solid, theologically, but they're choppy. And some of them are still too, a little bit academic. Uh, so we're trying to figure out, you know, how to mold and shape this in, in a presentable way. And that's, that's going to take a little bit of time. Um, but yeah, you're... It, you, Trust me, when I say you're the third person to ask me today, there will be three more. I get these text messages. Um, um, but but actually, and that's fine, because we want this to be a gift to the church. Mm-hmm. We want this to be of use to the church. And I love that the church is actually saying, we want to see this. Um, and and as as the one person on the planet who's seen most of it, there's reason for hope. There's reason for excitement.
0: <laughs> well, and that that's the part that I'm, most anxious about and excited about, because there are a lot of people who are who are asking questions about who are we theologically? What are we about? We're recapturing this tradition. Um, I do another podcast on Wesley Sermons, and I'm amazed at the number of people who are engaging that and just want to dive into that that part of our our heritage, some of the stuff that's been neglected for so long. So we'll wait for this document to come out, hopefully end of March. But in the meantime, You got to go get this book, The Next Methodism, Theological, Social, and Missional Foundations for Global Methodism, edited by Ryan Danker and Ken Collins. It's available from Seedbed. You can get it there on the website. It's now published and available. So get your copy. You are going to be blessed by it. And Ryan, I just want to thank you for joining us. and, And we continue to pray for you and your team in your work. Uh, It is a blessing to the church, and we look forward to hearing more about it.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me.
1: It is a privilege to have you here with us. And friends, we're so glad that you have joined us for another episode of Holy Conversations. We are excited about the WCA Global Gathering in Indianapolis. It will be Saturday, May 7th. Hope that you will make plans to join us there. But if you cannot join us in person, then I hope that you would consider hosting a live stream at your church. And you can contact Teresa Marcus in the WCA office for more details. And also take a visit to our website, WesleyanCovenant.org. You can get Get her information there and any information you need about the global gathering and we hope that you will check us out on Twitter at, at WCA pod but friends we are so glad that you have joined us Bob back to you
0: well we're grateful and Stephanie and I will be there in Indianapolis doing the podcast and uh, she'll be doing some other stuff there as well so we'll look forward to that but we're so glad you've joined us again send us your comments and questions at podcast at We'll see you back here next time on Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association.